and I was thinking about something this past week. I was thinking, how many of you understand the book of Job? You've heard of the book of Job. There's this book in the Bible. If you don't know the book of Job, there's this book in the Bible where there's this guy who seemingly is a good guy. He does everything right. His name is Job. Imagine that. The, name, the, the book's named after him. He's a really good guy. And, and then all of a sudden, for some reason, he faces this incredible suffering. He faces this incredible persecution, uh, this, this opposition, uh, spiritual warfare, you might say. And just goes through a season of just uh, loses his family, uh, loses his possessions, his wealth, even to the point that he, he begins to lose his health. And what happens in the book of Job is his friends respond typically like your friends and my friends respond. Where somebody goes through a hard season, somebody goes through something difficult, and we immediately say, well, what sin do you have in your life? You've got something wrong in your life, and that's why these bad things are happening to you. And I want us to understand that it's so contrary to what the gospel of Jesus Christ says. Okay? We look at suffering, we say, you're suffering because of sin. Okay? Now let me clarify, if you're in sin, you're playing with fire. Okay? It's just the way it works. There's something called the dumb tax. All right? You ever heard of the dumb tax? You do something dumb, and guess what's going to happen? It's going to bite you, right? That's what the dumb tax is. But I want us to understand that God is not vengeful. God is not seeking to bring justice and to, to spank anybody who sins. That's not the type of God he is. He's a God of mercy, a God of grace. He's the God who sent his son Jesus to die on the cross for your sin. God's not looking to drop a hammer on you. He's looking to forgive you. Yet, how many times as we go through life, how many times do we go through a difficult season, do we go through opposition, suffering, persecution, and we think, oh, it's because of sin in my life. In fact, I found this to be a reality, is that opposition and, and uh, persecution comes on the heels of success, not on the heels of suffering. Not on the heels of failure, excuse me. And so we were, uh, my wife and I, we were part of a church plant a couple years ago uh, out in Sela, And we saw this firsthand where you've got this pastor, and we love this guy. He was a righteous guy, served God faithfully, leading the church. And then all of a sudden the church started to grow. People started to come and get saved. The church was, was doing well. And all of a sudden we, this guy became the prime target for spiritual warfare. There's all sorts of opposition thrown to him, issues with his family, issues with health, issues, all sorts of things, time and time again. And we thought, man, what is going on? And this is the idea that opposition comes on the heels of success. When you and I are going to follow after God and be faithful to him, we are prime targets for suffering. We've seen this in, in, in our four and a half years since we planted Restoration Church. In fact, what's interesting is when you look at statistics of church planning, four out of five church plans do not last three years. You know why? Probably because this idea is when you are doing something for God, when you are faithful to him, when you're doing what he's called you to do, you are a prime target for opposition because we have a spiritual enemy named Satan. So if you have a Bible, um, I'm going to invite you to open your Bible to Nehemiah chapter 4. If you need a Bible, there's an usher in the back. Uh, he'll come and bring one to you. Here at Restoration Church, we are Bible people. And I'm really not that interesting. I don't have a lot to say. I'm not the full of the most wisdom. So we open up God's Word and allow God's Word to speak to us. Uh, typically, we go through sections of Scripture together. So this uh, series right now, we're looking at the book of Nehemiah. 
If you remember where we've been in Nehemiah, Nehemiah was a successful king or a successful guy. He was uh, in the king's court in Persia, and God put a burden on his heart. We know that burden that God put on. We've talked about it. God put the burden on his heart to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem, to restore the city, to revive the people. So in chapter one and chapters one and two, we saw that there was this idea um, of of how. Uh, the relationship with prayer works, how we pray for God to move, and then we have to be prepared to step in for God to use us. That's kind of the way it works. We pray, and we seek God's favor, and we seek God's blessing, and we seek God to, to move on our behalf. But we don't just sit there and wait and twiddle our thumbs. We wait for the opportunity for God to open the door for, for, for us to move. Chapter 3, we saw this last week, when we saw the people got to work. We saw there were 38 different names, eight different groups of people that were spread out across the wall, and they were commissioned and sent out to go and rebuild the walls. Now, when you get to this point of chapter 3, we think, man, this is the way it works, right? Like, here's a group of people. They've got a mission from God. They've got a purpose. They've got a vision. They're going to go and rebuild the walls. And you see them spread out across the city, and the whole wall is covered. You're like, yeah, this is awesome. Like, that's what God does. Like, we pray, and God's our genie in a bottle, and he just makes it happen, and everything's perfect, right? But that's not how Nehemiah plays out. In fact, that's not how our faith plays out. Because this is law of proportion. You understand the law of proportion. When you look at Nehemiah so far where we've been, we've seen one verse dealing with Nehemiah's passion, his, his, his burden. We've seen four verses where Nehemiah is praying. We've seen eight verses where Nehemiah lays out his plan. And as we open up to chapter 4, we're going to see three straight chapters related to opposition, to persecution, to discouragement. This is the reality that we need to understand, is that when we are following Jesus, we're not called to play it safe. We're called to follow him by faith, to, to be obedient to him even through hard times, even in hard things. And when we do that, spiritual warfare and opposition and, and, and uh, persecution and discouragement become a reality in our life when we are obedient to Christ. Nehemiah chapter 4, we're going to see something very important, and I want us to understand this from the very beginning. That the mission of God is too important to quit. I want us to understand this. For, for Nehemiah, for the people in, in Jerusalem, they're rebuilding the walls and restoring Jerusalem and reviving the people was too important for Nehemiah to quit just because opposition came. The reality of what's going to happen in Jerusalem, by, by restoring the walls, by reviving the city, this is, this is kind of the path that, that God brings to, to usher in Jesus, to usher in salvation to the whole world. And that mission is too important to quit on. One of the things that we've done as we've looked at the book of Nehemiah is related to our church, relating it to our life. And we understand we don't have a mission of rebuilding the walls. We have a mission to know Christ, to make Christ known. And I want us to understand that mission is too important for us to quit on. See, this is the hope of the world. The hope of the world is found in Jesus. The hope of the world is not just in some uh, social justice. The hope of the world is not found in political maneuvering to get everything going the way that we think things should go. Those aren't bad things, but those are not the hope of the world. 
Those things are temporal. They only affect this world, this lifetime. The hopes of the world last for eternity. Last forever. Beyond this life. The hope of the world is found in the gospel of Jesus Christ. On Jesus coming and living a perfect life. And giving his life as a sacrifice for every one of us. And and walking out of that grave, conquering Satan, death, and hell. Giving him victory. And allowing us to become sons and daughters of God. Listen, that mission is too important for us to quit on. Because the people around us, our community, our family members, the people around us, their eternity is at stake. The mission is too important for us to quit on. So Nehemiah chapter 4, here's what we're going to see. We're going to see three tactics that Satan uses to try and uh, bring opposition to us. And we're going to say, see three ways that we can persevere through those tactics. So we can endure to the end. So we don't quit in the face of opposition. Before we jump in, though, I'm going to ask you to join me in a word of prayer. God, just want to thank you for uh, the privilege of being here to worship you today. God, thank you that we're here not to come and listen to a pastor give his opinion on how we're supposed to live our life. But God, we want your words to speak to us, to draw us deeper in love with you, to help us to know you and to make you known. So God, I pray for your spirit to rest on us here today. God, you would comfort us where we need to be comforted, that you would challenge us where we need to be challenged. So God, you'd give us that resolve to not quit, to persevere even in the face of opposition. Jesus, we love you and we praise you. We ask this in your name. Amen. Nehemiah starts, Nehemiah chapter 4 starts out and says, Now when Sanballat, Sanballat is a guy that we've met before in this book already. We met him in chapter 2. He's a a governor, a a leader of sorts um, from the city of Samaria, which is north of Jerusalem. It says, now when Sambalat heard that we were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged, and he jeered at the Jews. They said at the presence of his brothers and the army of Samaria, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burn ones at that? Here's the first type of opposition that Satan often uses. First of his tactics is to ridicule. Ridicule people who are following after God, who are being obedient to him. See, verse 1 says that as soon as Sanballat heard what the people were doing, heard they're rebuilding the walls, that he became angry and he jeered at the Jews. And this is what happens when you and I, we start living for God. People hear, oh look, he's trying to be a righteous person now. He's trying to follow God. And people begin to notice something's different. And when they do that, naturally, people begin to ridicule. Look, you're a holy roller. You're whatever. In fact, this reminds me, probably one of the most god-awful places of persecution in the world. Many of you have been there. It's called middle school, right? You know what I'm talking about? I mean, middle school, you know what I'm talking about. You disagree. Oh, we'll get there. We'll get there. Middle school, you show up at school and you're wearing the wrong clothes. And you're going to hear about it for the rest of your life. Like the whole existence of the life of a middle schooler is to make fun of one another. Like it's horrible. In fact, I remember when I was growing up, uh, I had a single mom. And, 
you know, we, we, we struggled financially. Mom did her best, but we struggled financially. And so school started, and I had one pair of shoes. My kids, you have like two or three pairs of shoes. Be grateful for that. Like, I had one pair of shoes growing up. And I show up to school, and there's a hole in the toe. Who cares, right? It's not rainy yet. Until the kids start noticing, hey, you got a hole in your shoe. And so, all of a sudden, I had all these nicknames. People called me a prophet. Hey, look, you got holy shoes. You're a holy roller. Kevin, look at you. And I, I remember going home in tears, just, just crying one day because they're making fun of me and, and ridiculing and whatever else. And my sister came home, and I, she wasn't supposed to be home, so she saw me crying. And I was like, oh, I'm fine, I'm fine. And she's like, what's wrong? And I'm like, my shoes. I remember my sister went and took me to Fred Meyer's. And bought me a pair of, like, these cross trainers. They were, like, a little bit like a tennis shoe, a little bit like a hiking boot. Those are my favorite shoes in middle school. But, but that, that's my memory of middle school is how, how mean middle school kids can be. Listen, that's the scene that you see here in Nehemiah chapter 4. You've got the school bully named Sanballat. He shows up making fun. And, he, and you look at what he says. They're just dumb things. Verse 2, all the other kids are around, and they're clapping and, and cheering him on. Yeah, Sanballat, you're awesome. Keep making fun of the guy. Keep making fun of Nehemiah. The other thing you see in middle school is the bully always has a sidekick, a skinny little sidekick at that, right? So verse 3, it says, Tobiah the Ammonite, who we also met in chapter 2, he's from the east. Uh, he's the skinny little sidekick. He was beside him and said, yes, what are you building? If a fox goes up on the wall, it'll break down their stone wall. Here's ridicule at his finest. Now we can look at that and we can laugh about it and have some fun with it, but, but let's just be honest. How many times are we influences, influenced by what people say around us? How many times do we think, oh, I can't do this, or I need to do that because I know what other people around me are going to say or they're going to think about me? This isn't just a junior high problem. Oftentimes we won't wear, we won't do, we won't say, we won't follow certain things because we are afraid of what people will think about us. We're afraid of the ridicule that we're going to face, about who's going to call us stupid. And this happens this happens all the time in my family. My kids say to me, Dad, Dad, can you pick me up from practice today? But, Dad, can you wear something more than your boxer shorts? Dad, don't do that again. My wife says, Kevin, stop picking your nose because people are watching. And so we have these things where people ridicule us. And that's a joke. It didn't work very well, but it was funny. Honest, just to be honest, how many times... Will we not respond, or, or will we be afraid to respond because we're afraid of the ridicule that people are going to give us? And then let's, let's take it from the standpoint where the ridicule comes. People start mocking you, and how do we respond? Yeah, somebody says, hey, a fox is going to break down your wall. And how many of us come back with your mama joke? Your mama? I mean, how many of us, and when we have someone ridicule us, how do we respond? We usually when, when, when someone starts attacking us, what do we do in return? Attack back. Like, isn't that what we do? But Nehemiah has a different response. They start ridiculing him. They start mocking him. And verse 4, it says, Hear, O our God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunt on their own heads and give them up to the plundered in the land when, where they are captive. Do not cover their guilt and let not their sin be blotted out from your sight, for they have provoked to you in the presence 
provoke to you anger in the presence of the builders. This is how we are to persevere in the face of opposition, is that we respond in prayer, which is so different than typically the way that we want to respond. Because when someone ridicules us, we want to get right back in their face. We want to push back on them. And Nehemiah, he goes directly to God in prayer. He has the, he has the wherewithal to understand what's really happening here. The people, sure, they're ridiculing him, but they're really not ridiculing him. They're actually attacks against God himself, about the honor of God. Those are the objects of their attack. And so Nehemiah prays and he asks God, hey, instead of me going and battling these guys and vindicating myself, he asks God, hey, God, would you vindicate yourself? Now, I know you look at this prayer and you think it sounds mean. Like, here's some of the things he prayed about them. He said, uh, you know, do not cover their guilt. Uh, turn back their heads on them. Let them be plundered in lands where they are captive. See, Nehemiah is not praying specifically for revenge. We need to understand that these are something called um, imprecatory prayers, where somebody is invoking God's condemnation on God's own enemies. See, this, the, the, these guys are not Nehemiah's enemies. Well, they are, but they're more so God's enemies. And so he's saying, God... They've, they've wronged you. They haven't wronged me. They've wronged you. So God, would you bring vindication to them and not me? And he responds in prayer instead of responding back to them. I think that's so critical. In fact, there's an author by the name of Ian Bounds. And he wrote, he said, what the church needs today is not machinery, not better organizations, not new and novel methods. The church needs today is men whom the Holy Ghost can use. Men of prayer. Mighty men of prayer. Man, I would say that is some deep truth for us here today. That we are to pray first and refuse the temptation to respond. I mean, how many of us need to learn this principle? Too often, we ignore the sound advice of, try, of praying first and instead, we analyze, or we speak, and then we begin to regret some of the things we say. What situation in your life can you think of that you wish you understood this principle of praying first? Of not responding, but just giving it to God. You see here, it doesn't change Sam Ballot. It doesn't change the situation, but it begins to change Nehemiah. It helps Nehemiah to recognize, listen, God is the one that's at stake here. God's going to bring vindication, not me. Continues in verse 6 and says, So we built the wall. The wall was joined together to half its height, for the people had a mind to work. Nehemiah, they ridicule him. He prays, asks for God's favor, and he gets right back to work. Kind of this, uh, this idea that's a reminder to us that, listen, even though people might ridicule us, we don't answer to them. Even though people might oppose us, we don't answer to them. We will answer to God one day. And are we, you and I, are we going to stop doing what God has called us to do because somebody else ridicules us? We're going to allow them to, to change what God has called us to do because of some opposition? This is a reminder, you're not going to answer to them. You're going to answer to God. And he's the one that you need to listen to. Verse 7, it says, When Sanballat and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites, 
they heard the, that the repairing of the walls was going forward and the ridicule didn't work and that the breaches were being, uh, get, beginning to be closed. They were very angry. I want us to understand when it says Sanballat, he's coming from the north. Tobias coming from the east. The Arabs are coming from the south. The Ashdodites, they're coming from the west. Nehemiah and the Israelites, they have opposition from every direction. There's opposition coming from every direction. In verse 8, it says, And they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and cause confusion in it. See, when the ridicule was unsuccessful, Tobiah gathered a bunch of people together, rallied them together to oppose God's people. You ever noticed? You ever notice how hard it is to get Christians to work together? How, as Christians, we are divided because we have different purposes, we have different theology, and there's all these things that separate us. But notice here, the people of the world have no problem uniting in opposition to the work of God. And these guys unite together to oppose what God is doing in Jerusalem. And here we see the second tactic that Satan often uses is there becomes physical threats. There becomes threats. Here you see these physical threats. Hey, we're going we're gonna to fight against Jerusalem. In fact, verse 11 says uh, that they're going to come and kill them in order to stop the work. Now, most of us, we aren't going to experience physical threats. Maybe some of us will. But we, many of us, understand what it means to be threatened because of our faith. We understand how, how living our faith sometimes affects promotions at work because we're, got to, we're going to work the way, a certain way that applies with how God would call us to live. And so sometimes that means that we're no longer qualifying uh, to, to go up the corporate ladder. Sometimes we understand that when we follow after God and we change the way we live and we do things a little bit different, that there are relationships that say, hey, you're not the same person. And so there's a threat of losing those relationships because of following after God. In fact, that was my experience. When I became a Christian, uh, I told you I had a single mom. And there were some, some men, some mentors, who were heavy, heavily involved in my life, who had a big impact on my growing up. And when I became a Christian, man, I had a threat of losing those relationships. And many of those relationships were cut off. Still won't talk to me 15, 16 hours. 18 years later. This is sad, but many of us know this to be true. When you follow what God has for you, there's a threat to, to, to areas in your life. The question is, what do you do? The threat's there. You're going to quit? You're going to find an easier route to take? That's not what Nehemiah does. Nehemiah, again, he's a man of prayer. He's going to go to prayer. And the second thing he's going to do He's become very vigilant. Verse 9 says, And we prayed to our God, and we set a guard as a protection against them day and night. He recognizes the mission of God is too important. So he keeps on, except this time now he has some wisdom. He sets a guard to watch, to be vigilant for an attack, to look for an opportunity where the enemy might come in and try to attack them. He's still spiritually dependent on God. He's praying and saying, God, we need you here. But he also is very practically engaged with the people. And he sets a guard around the city 24-7. He says, listen, guys, we cannot relax for a moment. Because the moment we relax, the enemy who is threatened is going to come in 
to seek, to kill, and to destroy. Listen, we've got to understand if we are following after God, we are a, a prime target for Satan who wants to sing opposition, who wants to come in and do those same things to, to still kill and destroy. And if we don't have a guard up, if we have a guard down, listen, we become wide open territory for Satan to come in and to lead us astray. I mean, how many of us know that story of that person who was on fire for God? And you watch them and you're like, man, look at that person. Something's different about them. God is using them in a tremendous way. Uh, and then because they weren't vigilant, you hear a time later, there was a moral failure. There was a financial failure. There was an issue in their character that caused a different type of failure. We look and we're so surprised. Well, what happened? They weren't vigilant. They weren't prepared. Vigilant means that we recognize an attack before Satan can come and destroy us. And there are areas in our life that we have to be vigilant on. When you're looking at your family, you say, man, I want a strong family. I want a family uh, that, that becomes healthy and strong. And I want my marriage to be strong. Listen, are you vigilant in your marriage? Have you set a guard in your heart to where your heart doesn't become inclined to someone else? Have you set a guard sexually to where you aren't going to wander into an inappropriate relationship? This is what it means for us to be vigilant as we set these things, we pay attention to what's going around us. In fact, my wife and I, we've got five kids and we sought for, we, we, we sought for a season. Hey, let's figure out what the perfect formula is. Like, I, like we, we, we're looking for the formula. Hey, if we do this, and we school our kids this way, and we do this, then our kids are guaranteed to turn out right. We, I wanted the formula. So we would talk to anybody we could. Hey, hey, wh what do you do with your kids? You know what we found? There's no formula. There is no formula. There are the parents who do things really well, and they do this way, and that works good for them. The other parents who did it really well in the same way, and their kids went off a whole different direction. I think the key is, you've got to be vigilant with your kids. You've got to, to watch and know who your friends are, know who your kids are around. You've got to know the things they're, they're into. Whether they are whatever type of school or whatever you do with them, you've got to be vigilant with them. To know what's going on. Men, are you vigilant in regards to lust? Have you set a guard around you on your phone? on your computer? Is there accountability around you? Because listen, if we're not vigilant, we become wide open for Satan to come and attack, kill, and destroy. This vigilance is so important because of Satan's third tactic. Satan's third tactic is to bring discouragement. In fact, in verse 6, if you remember verse 6, it said that they had gone halfway, they got to the halfway point. The wall was halfway built. And this was the critical point because this is where discouragement loves to creep in. The halfway point. This is a point of no return. You can't start over because you've got too many resources and energy spent. But you're looking at the finish line. You're saying it's so far away. And you're just wondering, hey, hey, all that we've done, it doesn't match the energy and the resources we spent. We've been doing all this work and it seems like we're still so far off. So verse 10, it says, In Judah it was said, The strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. 
there is too much rubble. By ourselves, we will not be able to build, rebuild the wall. Too much left. We've done all this work. We've worked so hard. There's still too much rubble. And we're tired. And we want to go to bed earlier. And we want to take a nap. Verse 11, it says, And our enemies said they will not know or see till we come among them and kill them and stop the work. See, this is the threat that is going to cause fear. People begin to threaten us. We, we have this inner turmoil, turmoil inside us where we begin to fear, what's going to happen if I continue being faithful to what God is going to do? And verse 12, this is probably the worst. And at that time, the Jews who lived near them came from all directions and said to us ten times, you must return to us. This is their own people. Saying, listen, don't, 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 don't go crazy for God. Play it safe. There's always going to, believe, going to be believers around you. They're going to tell you, you know what, just play it safe. Refuse to align yourself with the radical call of Jesus to, to know Christ and to make Christ known. And just come and live the safe, easy Christian life. You see all these tactics. All these ways of bringing discouragement are all forms of conversation. The people say to themselves, hey, we're too tired. You've got people from the outside saying this is what's going to happen and that causes fear. You've got other believers who are saying, hey, come and play it safe. These are all forms of conversation. And so many times when we're discouraged, it comes because we are listening to our own voice. We're tired, we're overwhelmed, we're losing hope. And discouragement is probably the hardest tactic that the enemy was going to throw at us. It's just to allow us to be discouraged. Listen, just this idea of, I think it's important to recognize. Discouragement comes, we get tired. We absolutely do. Proverbs chapter 24, verse 10 says, If you faint in the day of adversity, your strength is small. Meaning, if you do all the training, you do all, all the prayer, you've got the passion, you've got, you've got everything you need, and you're all prepped, and then you hit the battlefront, and the moment persecution comes, you fold. Well, that Proverbs said is it was all worth it. It's like you never should have prepped in the first place because you didn't have the, the wherewithal to withstand some opposition. In fact, there's a quote that I've seen attributed to Winston Churchill as well as Oswald, Oswald Chambers that says, the world is run by tired people. So what do we do when the discouragement hits? What do we do when that discouragement comes? Here's Nehemiah's response. Vital, verse 13. So in the lowest parts of the space behind the wall, in open place spaces, I stationed the people by their clans with their swords and their spears and their bows. This is continued vigilance. And I looked and arose and said to the nobles and to, said to the officials and to the rest of the people, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your brothers and sons and your daughters and your wives and your homes. You hear that? This is number three for us on how we are going to persevere. This is something that in your Bible you should highlight, you should underline, you should put, should put blanking lights all around it. He says, remember the Lord who is great and awesome. Remember God. 
Because what happens is when you're in that season of discouragement, when there's opposition around you, we tend to fix our attention on ourselves. We get to focus on ourselves and we want to figure out, how can I justify myself? How can I prove myself? How can I defend myself? And if we're not focused on ourselves, we become obsessed with our opponent. We're focused on, on, on what they're going to do to us. And their words and their scorn, we give them life in our minds. And we replay them time and time and time again. Listen, this is what happens in discouragement. Many of you know what I'm talking about. When you're discouraged, all you're hearing is yourself, yourself, yourself. And you're listening to yourself. And your eyes are off God because they're all on you. This is why Nehemiah says, remember God. Remember the Lord. Put your eyes right here. Focus on the on what God says. Focus on who he is. Focus on, on what he says about you. Nehemiah says, remember, despite the opposition, God is awesome. God is great. Let's not forget that. Sure, there might be a Sam ballad in front of us, but God is still awesome and still great. I mean, in my own life, I've had seasons where, where, where God gives me this great God confidence. And I have seasons where I, I don't have any of that confidence. I have doubt. I have fear. And what I've realized is that most of the unhappiness in my life is due to the fact that I am listening to myself instead of talking to myself. Most of the times when I'm struggling is because I'm listening to myself instead of talking to myself. Yes, I'm telling you to start talking to yourself. Because when my seasons of struggle have got to stop listening and start preaching to myself, that despite, despite what's going on around me, Listen, this is who God is. God is awesome. God is great. God is all-powerful. With God, all things are possible. And I've got to remember that despite how I feel right now, God still loves me. God still sent his son to die in my place. God still calls me his son. God has called me to do a great work. And God doesn't, God, God doesn't call someone without equipping them to do it. This is where I've got to learn how to preach to myself and allow God's word to inform myself instead of just listening to all those thoughts running around in my head. In fact, Nehemiah goes a little bit further. This is verses 15 through 19. He continues this idea of vigilance. And he says, here's what we're going to do. We're going to set half the workers to continue working on the wall. And the other half the workers, they're going to be on guard. In fact, everybody, they're going to work and they're going to have a shovel in one hand and a weapon in the other hand. That way, in case an attack comes, we're vigilant. We're ready. He says, we're going to, we're going to, we're going to send um, a trumpet out. And because everybody is spread out along the wall, that's probably a mile and a half to two miles long. Uh, we're going to have someone with a trumpet. And if you hear the trumpet, you rally around the trumpet ready to fight. In verse 20, he says, remember this, our God will fight for us. Isn't that what we need to hear in times of discouragement? When Satan has brought that, that opposition to us and we feel just down, remember God. Remember who he is. Remember what he says he'll do for you. Oh, imagine if we could just do this. If we could just remember God in those times of discouragement. 
of disappointment. How things would be different. Last thing I want to point out, verse 14. Nehemiah says, remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, your homes. He wants us to recognize that your life, your circumstances, what God has called you to, it is too big to be centered around you. You're fighting for more than just yourself. He's saying fight, stand faithful, because you are fighting for your family. You are fighting for your community. You're fighting for your home. You're fighting for your city. You're fighting for generations to come. In fact, I think about this as a dad. I want us to understand this. I think about this as a dad. I recognize I've got four boys and one girl. And I recognize that they are watching. They are watching how I live. How I handle discouragement. And that's going to teach them something. So when my kids watch me and if I quit, and they're learning something from that. When I choose comfort over sacrifice, they're watching that. When I choose the easy thing versus the right thing, they're learning from that. When I choose to to love my wife poorly, they're learning from that. When I choose to talk negative about the church, my kids are watching and listening. Listen, I'm the same thing. When I choose to love my wife well, they're going to learn from that too. When I choose to honor the church and be faithful to the church, they're learning from that too. See, what's happening today is you and I, we are not fighting for ourselves. We're fighting for our families, for generations to come. So what are you teaching your family? What are you teaching those around you with how you're fighting? This is the reality, that if we are going to be faithful to God and follow after him, we are going to face opposition. Don't be surprised by it. It is the way that faith works. It's the way that life works. And it may be ridicule, and maybe threats, and maybe discouragement. And maybe you're in that season right now where you're saying, I'm feeling the ridicule. I'm feeling the threats. I'm feeling the discouragement. I said, don't lose hope. Don't, don't, don't back off the God thing. Don't settle for just status quo, for an easy Christian life. Listen, the mission is too important. You are fighting not just for yourself, but you're fighting for generations to come. In the face of that opposition, listen, we've got to be, we've got to pray. We've got to be people. We've got to be people who pray first. We've got to be vigilant around us where we're ready for an attack, anticipating it, instead of getting caught surprised. We've got to remember that God's on our side. He's fighting for us question is, are you going to quit? The opposition comes, are you going to persevere? Or are you going to take the easy way out? 